0: Hi everyone and thank you for joining us today. Erin Karenanti here, Pingree Assistant Director of Athletics and Athletic Trainer, hoping you and your family are continuing to stay healthy and safe. Today you'll hear from myself, Athletic Trainer Steve Spezio and Strength and Conditioning Coach Mike Saracino as we discuss the topic of plyometric exercises. We hope you have a great week and please enjoy the seventh episode of the Pingree Performance Podcast.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to the show today. Uh joined today by uh both Aaron and Mike. Hey guys, what's up?
0: How you doing, Steve? Hey Steve.
1: Doing well. Um kind of getting into uh the the COVID slump a little bit here, uh which is again why we're kind of doing this this episode too and starting to really uh take our focus towards um more physical performance here and talking about different kinds of exercise that that we can be doing when we're at home, things that don't take a lot of equipment and, and don't take a lot of space. So uh, today we want to touch on, on plyometrics. So Mike, uh, run us through what yeah. plyometrics actually are.
2: All right, so <clears throat> plyometrics, um, it's, just, it's an exercise that involves rapid stretching and contraction of your m- muscles um, to develop a forceful and powerful movement. Probably the best, I guess the best way. And a best example of that would be a jump with landing and then jumping again.
1: So in physics terms, and the way I always understood this, in physics terms um, where strength, muscular strength might represent work, meaning um, work as we know it in physics is force times distance, right? So we take some kind of force, apply it to some kind of resistance and push it over a specific amount of distance. power takes the same equation and takes that same work but we divide it by by time so yes. if we're taking um, force times distance over time that means the amount of work that we're doing in the shortest amount of time produces the most amount of power
2: yes and then um like in, in a lot of you'll be in a lot of articles where they measure that based off like ground reactive forces you know amount of time you spend on the ground in between your strides um, uh, and actually just Kind of getting there. That's why sprinting is one of the more important and more specific things for an athlete to do is because it's the exact ground ground reaction force, ground contact time as you would have uh in a game. That's why we like sprinting for training.
1: Yeah, and I think that that speaks to this being a really sport specific type of exercise where a lot of what we're doing um on the field, on the court, um in the pool, even is plyometric in and of itself that that if we're taking any kind of explosive power type movement where we're doing uh, a quick movement against resistance that we're seeing that uh, throughout a lot of our sports so this does translate well by the said principle right specific adaptations to impose demands by the said principle it takes us it takes us from the weight room or in this case the garage or the driveway and moves it into it moves it back onto the field.
2: Yes. Yeah, and it's one of those things that um, it can be done year-round and it doesn't have to be phased in. And you have almost unlimited access. If you have a six-foot by six-foot area of just ground that you can jump and land on, you, you have a, a really, really large exercise menu in front of you.
1: And what about any specific benefits that we get from plyometric exercises um compared to say traditional strength training
2: well i think i always go the the beauty the beauty of of plyometric exercise for me and, and for for jump training and all that really is number one it's going to teaching an athlete how to land properly uh you know and applying the appropriate mechanics for landing and takeoff is going to reduce the likelihood of injuries and you guys know this from uh, the amount of, uh, you know, jumping and landing that ACL rehab athletes are encouraged to do. I mean, that's that's a huge part of the ACL rehab protocol is jumping and landing, jumping and landing. Um, because, you know, because what it does is it bolsters, you know, your ligaments, your tendons, all of, the, uh, all of the areas that are surrounding the joint, you know, and it's going to help kind of create a protective response just innately from athletics so if you look at like a sport like women's basketball right the mechanism for an acl injury mostly in women's basketball is when they're taking off on one leg right and then they have to come down awkwardly on the other leg that is a, that is a programmable and trainable aspect of the sport that you can now bring into your weight room you can bring it off the field you can add it on to post practice when i was training villanova men's lacrosse we did we did extra plyos um on Tuesdays and Thursdays, right? Just kind of at the tail end of practice, it was lower, low to mid-level plyometrics. I mean, we weren't doing, you know, the the depth jumps with forty-eight inch boxes or anything like that. But we were jumping and landing, right? And and trying to pattern that into their general movements uh, to help reduce the likelihood of those ACL tears.
0: I think um, one of the things we need to be conscious of is what Mike just mentioned, where he was doing training on Tuesday, Thursday. You don't hear Mike talking about doing plyometric exercises Monday through Friday. Our muscles need a break. Our muscles need to be able to recover. So if we are trying to do plyometric exercises four days in a row, that's going to actually cause more harm than good. So knowing which exercises to do when is going to be really helpful in your exercise programming. So knowing that our plyometrics take a lot of energy from our body, And we need to be able to recoup that afterwards. So making sure you're not doing a ton of plyometrics multiple days in a row, and you're giving your body that rest that it needs in between days.
2: Yeah, actually, Erin, you just touched on a great point. That's one of those things where, so plyometrics are also on that, unlike that continuum of, of high or low central nervous system activity. They're at the top end along with like sprinting and Olympic weightlifting. So you have to dose it appropriately. You usually need between 48 hours and 72 hours for a complete recovery between sessions, right? And, and I, know, I know a lot of people love the topic of recovery as a fad. Um, it's not a fad, though. What it is is you're trying to give your muscles, tendons, ligaments uh, time to repair all those little micro traumas so that we don't end up hurting you. Right. And that's that's part of the recovery process.
1: Not only that, but in, in a, from a performance standpoint, also um, w- with sports specific adaptations, we do more than just plyometrics in our specific activities. So in terms of an all encompassing performance style training, um, it's important to train other types of activities other than just plyometrics, too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and it can be folded in. What's cool is. Is plyometric can be folded in in a lot of different ways, right? You can, you can pair it on, uh, you know, uh, like like Tudor Bampa back in the late '90s when he was pairing um, plyometric activity with heavy squatting and heavy bench pressing, right, in order to elicit, uh, you know, like a, a greater stretch-shortening cycle and 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 more explosive movements. But you can also do it on the front side of your workouts, and I I, I actually think that for youth athletes especially, which is kind of the audience that we're hitting, that's probably the best. Do take book, bookend 10 to 15 minutes at the front side of your workout, you know, on Monday and Thursday, right? That's all you need. You know, I I think a lot of us get caught up into watching the videos of athletes like, like Odell Beckham Jr. going through what looks like to be, you know, an obstacle course, um, to train quote unquote plyometrically or explosively. But, but really it's, it's very simple jumping and landing and making sure that your joint structures are in the appropriate position to handle the land properly. I mean, that's, that's the magic of it right there.
0: Right. We don't need to have that 12, um, 12 inch box to be able to do box jumps right now. You don't need to be able to jump six feet in the air onto a box right now. We are, we are in the house. We are using the means that we have and, like mike just mentioned being able to jump up and land in that small space is all we need right now to be able to train this without giving this part of our training up
2: and there's like so the way i when i when i look at like plyometrics and programming i have four different planes of movements that i'm looking to go right i have a vertical plane i have the like long long jump broad jump right and then i have the transverse plane and i also have lateral so jumping left to right. Now inside of those four categories, you're talking each category. I mean, I could think of, I could think of six vertical jumps off the top of my head that don't involve equipment. Right. The box is nice. The box is a nice place to begin uh, because what I think this is another area that gets very confused. The height of the box is not there to to challenge you to jump higher. The height of the box is there to reduce the gravitational forces on your joints. Right? So a box jump is actually easier on your joints than a vertical jump. But if you don't have a box to jump to, landing on the ground is fine.
1: And I think, uh, Mike, you stressed on, on this earlier, which was the importance of the correct joint positions. Um, yes. And correct joint positions not only reduce those forces, not only reduce our likelihood of injury, um, but also train us for things like ACL prevention, which you had mentioned earlier, um, how to properly decelerate our bodies, uh, as opposed to just accelerating them, so those eccentric-type movements. Um, yes. But it also makes us more efficient in our movement patterns, and it gives us the strongest way to move. So when we talk about form, not only does it protect our joints and our bodies, but it actually puts us in the best position for perfect performance at the same time.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it's It's the only way you're going to optimally express force is in a good position. You know, because the second, like, let's 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 uh take a second to think about uh, a front squat, right? The second your hips pop up in the front squat and your shoulders don't don't lead, right? Your your the back end comes up higher. You're now forcing all that work on your lower back, right? How how much stronger are your quads, hamstrings, and glutes than your lower back exponentially? But you're taking you're almost taking them out of the equation with just one slight movement fault, which can be very easily corrected. And plyometrics, there's, there's no different in, in plyometrics, jumping, landing, and running.
1: Yeah, those movements will translate into um, some other things that we do. Uh, for example, your ability to decelerate after a jump to slow your body back down, meaning we're not jumping on or landing on straight legs, we're Absorbing that force through our joints to land back into that squat position. Um, those motions, if we perfect them, will translate into performance on the field. For example, being able to slow our bodies down to change direction. So it will actually make our movements faster and more explosive too. When this yeah. translates to on-field performance,
2: right? Because what, like, it's taking those tendons and those ligaments, right? And it's it's thickening them up and making bolstering them so that when it comes time to stretch. That, that potential energy is just so much more there than if you have a lax, if you have laxity in those structures.
1: Right, and we think about the analogy of, uh, of a spring, right? If you have kind of a loosely packed spring, it'll work and it'll move and it'll be flexible, but it's not going to snap back as hard as we want it to. So when we talk about potential energy, we load up that potential energy in a loosely packed spring. Um, it's not going to explode backwards as, as much as we want, but the more we train it to get that, that stiff, tightly packed spring, um, then we'll be able to load that potential energy to a higher degree uh, right. than we would have normally, which makes that movement so much more efficient and so much more explosive.
2: And uh, yeah, and I think it's also important for us to frame it in terms of reality of like what. So, so like we've mentioned, it's a trainable, it's a trainable quality of strength, a trainable quality. So we can we can start at point A and we can get to point B. Now we are limited and everybody has everybody's body has a, a little bit of a genetic limit on how much force you can put out how high you can jump right it's just a fact of life but if you're a, a if you have a vertical jump of let's say 19 inches and you're coming out of high school you can improve that to 24 or 25 by the, by the time you're done playing a college sport and i've seen it happen likewise if you're i've seen i've seen uh, athletes come in with a 32 inch vertical jump and with Poor training, poor attitude, uh, poor commitment, they degrade down to a 27 because they just don't put the effort in. Because a lot of it, once we we talked about it before, right, there's that central nervous system that's governing all of it that if you're not putting that level of effort in, you're not going to get anything out. So there's genetic limitations, but there's also the work ethic side of it as well.
1: All right, so let's talk about programming. Um, yeah. and not not to get ridiculously um, scientific about it, but where do we go from here? How do we start with this, especially in our current situation? How do we start with this at home um, before we translate it into something uh, that might go to uh, back back to the gym?
2: I think start let's uh, start at what we used to call at Villanova level zero. And level zero is very simple. Can you perform a body weight hip hinge? right? Can you find the athletic position and are you comfortable holding that position for a certain amount of time? And I have videos of this through all of our our strength docs. And if anyone has any questions, feel free. I'm probably going to end up putting like a little plyometric series together. So, um, and then that would be a a bilateral. So that's two feet connected to the ground, hip hinge or RDL, and then moving into a single leg because eventually you're going to progress up to, to, uh, um to single leg jumps and lands and stuff like that that's just kind of part of the continuum so you want to be able to make sure you understand that first and then moving into i would say i always find the vertical plane easiest to teach so a basic vertical jump with 50 percent level of effort put into the jump for a couple weeks two times a week and then just start moving it moving the needle from there
1: um, And I think it's important to remember, too, as we're getting started with all of this stuff and talking about programming, um, if you have questions about this, please reach out to us. Um, don't expect you, especially just listening to this and not being able to see demonstrations, to take this information and run with it unless you've done this before and you've had eyes on you before. Sometimes it's easier to have eyes on. On someone and get that that visual feedback, or even the possibilities of doing this in front of a mirror or on camera yourself um, first before we start doing anything, so that way it can translate well uh, into into perfect form as we go along doing it too.
2: Uh, you know, I think I think that's really important, especially because a lot of those a uh, lot of those rapid movements, because once you add speed, you're adding complexity to a movement that generally you you might not be able to feel. While you're doing it, but you might be able to see either in a real time or be in retrospect, uh, and ha- either having someone who has a trained eye or having your eyes on it after the fact or during it will kind of enhance, uh, you know, your learning curve on all the all the jumps and stuff.
1: Yeah, and as as with any kind of physical activity, we can't stress uh, safety more than anything else. Um, making sure we're not doing more harm than good to ourselves, especially at this time. Uh, and when we are remote, knowing what resources that you do have available to you, whether that be um, a, a parent, whether it be a a sibling, a friend. Um, you know, we talked we talked in our last episode about about the accountability buddies and making sure we have someone that we're, we're doing things with. Uh, to keep us accountable. So if you have one of those for exercise, you can use that person as a resource. You can use us as as, as resources as well. So uh, making sure that you, you know what your resources are right now to make sure that uh, we're keeping ourselves safe too.
2: Absolutely. And actually, I, I, you brought up a great point with the safety is that part of safety is also not overdoing it and following like a sound uh, logic behind set and rep scheme, right? When we talk about The amount of sets you do times the amount of reps you do equals your total volume. You should never, especially as a youth athlete, you should never have your total volume of jumps for the day exceed 23 to 26. Right. I know, I know it goes, that kind of goes against what we're told in the NSCA. Whereas, you know, we're, when we can start training plyometrics, they want us at like, you know, 200 foot contacts a week or something like that. But um, less is always more. Uh, especially with with a high, high level of risk, right? You're increasing your risk when you're increasing the speed of the movement. So with that risk, with a developing structure of our muscles and our joints, especially at that age, at 14 to 18 year youth athlete age, I'd rather err on the side of caution. I would say two to three times a week, uh, no more than 23 to 26 repetitions per, per session.
0: Um, One of the things that can come up with plyometrics, especially exercise in general as well, but one of those things is what we call delayed onset muscle soreness, right? One of the reasons why we're not going to continue to push our muscles too much is because we need them to recover. Um, You might have worked out on day one, day two you feel pretty good, and by day three your muscles are sore and stiff and you're wondering why is this happening, right? That's a total normal occurrence, Um, happens to everyone. It can happen sometimes hours after, but usually it's that next day or the day after where you're going to start to feel that soreness. Um, Eventually that's going to start to go away. Um, Your body does adapt. When we engage in certain exercises, we increase our intensity, we increase our resistance. Um, That's going to start to dissipate, but it is totally normal for our body to feel sore. Um, And that soreness is actually forcing our body to adapt to that increase that we are that we're giving
2: it. Right. And what, what we know about DOMS too, and, and this is kind of just to put uh put a little bit more context to it for uh for those who are going to go through it and, and to to kind of indicate what they're feeling, we know that DOMS DOMS happens and it's kind of brought on by the eccentric movement. Right. It's that eccentric movement that's gonna kind of do a, a good amount of damage to the muscle fiber that's going to cause it to need to repair rebuild uh and recover now when it comes to doms you're going to experience it and you're going to feel it usually like you said like you might work out on monday you might not feel it tuesday at all but wednesday it hits you like a ton of bricks right but you don't want to train while you're feeling the effects of doms you could do other stuff you could do light low impact stuff you could do recovery based movements you could do mobility work all that kind of stuff but but the the hard training should be held until after you have kind of come out of that cycle of DOMS. And you're going to, I know personally, I experienced DOMS for about three weeks. If, I, if I'm if i going from a dead stop where I, I haven't trained for a month, like when I was coming off of my back surgery, um, I'm coming in, it took about three weeks for me to stop feeling DOMS. Now, a youth athlete, it might only take you guys two because your bodies are in a much better position to recover than mine.
0: I think one of the things that you said is the most important where you want that active rest You don't want to completely rest your muscles and stop doing everything because then you're just going to reset that clock If you are using that active rest using your rest to let your muscles recover light activity Um, Right now you can do a light jog um, a walk Even if you have an elliptical something like that, but you don't want to push your body to the brink again
2: right Exactly, and those those light that light activity is actually going to pump that lymphatic fluid through, and it's going to clear out what's sitting there. And I mean, theoretically, like this is still very theoretical, but like all those companies, like Normatech, talk about uh, talk about flushing the lymphatic fluid. But your body actually can naturally do that, provided you just keep moving.
0: Yeah, and one of the other things which we've talked about on a lot of our other podcasts is the importance of sleep and nutrition. The importance of sleep and nutrition is huge in muscle recovery. If you're not getting the sleep you need, if you're not getting a proper diet, your muscles are not going to recover as quickly.
2: So your nervous system doing, won't either. Right. Your CNS just this. won't. Yeah. Your CNS just won't want to fire if you're if you're not sleeping and you're not eating well and all that. That's a great pointer. Um,
1: on the topic of recovery, you guys mentioned a couple times mobility also, and I think keeping tabs on our mobility, especially if we're going to start introducing plyometric work is really, really important. So we mentioned a couple of times the benefits of packing down those those tendon sheets and and stiffening everything up. That has a lot of benefits in plyometric work. It has a lot of benefits in agility work. Um, But like everything in life, um, we need everything in moderation. If we If we do too much of that and use this as an exclusive tool and don't pay attention to things like static stretching and mobility work and and all that post exercise, um, proper cool downs and and proper stretching after we do plyometric work, especially, what we'll start to notice over time is uh, an increase in our tendon stiffness that might start to inhibit our mobility a little bit. Um, And as we start doing that, we're gonna start noticing deficits in other places. For example, um, if we're doing a lot of jump training, and then we decide after a couple of weeks to go back to squats you might not be able to hit the depth in your squats simply because your ankle mobility isn't quite where you want it to be because our achilles is stiffened up and we can't get to that dorsiflexion that we want to be able to to get so i think that 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 does play a role uh in terms of recovery that we want to make sure that we're increasing our our mobility work too right now
2: yeah absolutely absolutely and, and uh you know thinking about mobility on like kind of that scale that continuum of if you're hyper mobile right if you're if you're hyper mobile you actually want to do more of this <laughs> you know you want more more impact to pack down those sheets and to kind of bring that range of motion back into that normative range but if you're immobile right you're going to have to do that work at the end of your training just to to make sure you're back in that normative range because every every joint has has a normal range of motion it may differ Based off of of certain aspects of of you know the way your body is structured. I know everybody has a little bit different of an ankle, a little bit different of a hip, but overall we have a normative range of motion that we have to function inside of, and that's kind of where we want to be with it.
1: All right. Um. So know where your resources are. Uh, start working this into your uh, your everyday um, plans. So start getting this on on the agenda for yourselves in terms of your workouts. Um, with the way we talked about it today. If you have questions, um, if you need if you need help with any of this, please reach out to any of us um, or any of your other resources right now. And we're we're always happy to help. Um, Mike and Aaron, thanks guys, as always. Yeah. Um, and we will see you guys on the next episode.
0: Thank you, have a great day. Thank you, bye-bye. Fight on
1: three, fight on three, one, two, three, Run! Run!